Well, it would be so helpful if you could keep that Bible reading open from Isaiah chapter 9. And there's an outline on the back of the new sheet. Uh, There's also a sermon's transcript available at the back if that would be of help, or Bibles up the back if you would like a physical Bible. But let's pray and ask God for the ultimate help. Loving Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us. And so we pray that as we open up this passage, uh, may your spirit be at work in our hearts and in our lives, transforming us, softening up our hearts, opening up our eyes, unstopping our ears to see just how glorious you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One year at school camp, we went exploring caves. We went caving. Uh, Before we went in, we had to put helmets on with torches. Uh, We had to put harnesses on to make sure that we're all kind of harnessed together. Uh, We went down into the caves. We went through different gaps. Uh, We traversed uh, different climbs. We went through different holes. And we came to a point where we just stopped and took a break. And at this point, our guide told us all to turn our torches off. And let me tell you, it was completely pitch black. I remember trying to wave my hand in front of my eyes, like just there, and I couldn't see it at all. Uh, This type of darkness really becomes disorientating, doesn't it? Uh, You can't really tell which way is up or which way is down. It becomes a little bit disconcerting. You don't really know what's going on around you. And slowly but surely, it probably will become distressing. You don't know what's going to come next. You don't know if you're going to be able to escape the darkness. Well, this is how Isaiah describes how Israel is going to be judged because of the way that they have treated the Lord. The writing is on the wall for the nation. Judgment is coming. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 8, Isaiah tells us that instead of asking the living Lord for guidance and for instructions and for help, Israel have been looking to the dead for guidance through various spiritual mediums. They've become spiritually and morally corrupt. And so because of this, God won't let this go unpunished because he is a just God. He is a holy God. And so he describes their punishment in these verses in uh, chapter 8, verse 21, if you look up with me. Uh, Distressed and hungry, they'll roam through the land. When they are famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. No peace. No prosperity, a fractured relationship with God, no king to lead them properly, and no light to guide them. By all accounts, this looks like a fairly bleak and hopeless situation, doesn't it? If we put ourselves in the shoes of the other nations looking on, it may appear that Israel is down and out, that Israel is weak. Even worse, that their Lord is weak. If we put ourselves in Israel's shoes, it may look like God had abandoned his people or unable to help his people. However, as we'll see in chapter 9 today, is that God is still in the business of saving his people even when they deserve judgment. 
Yes, judgment will come for Israel, but that isn't the end of the story. God's plans and purposes are still completely on track. Because out of the inky black darkness, God will gloriously provide light after judgment. And where we'll see today is that God will provide a great light, provide peace and freedom, ultimately all through his glorious Son. So look at me, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, it's a great word that, nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Nevertheless, there will be a time for God's people where all the gloom is over, when the judgment is done and God will provide for his people. The distressed will be comforted. The darkness will be gloriously lit up. And those who are humbled will be lifted up. God won't let his people languish in judgment forever, but he promises that he will save them. And this will begin in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, These are towns that are around the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, around the Sea of Galilee. And these are pointed out because these were some of the first cities to be taken by the Assyrians. They were the first to be humbled. It would have been humiliating, like being the first person to drop off a beep test or to be the first person out in a schoolyard game, not speaking from experience. Uh, But these are probably the places that Israel wouldn't have expected God to be at work in. But as we'll see later, that this is exactly where God in flesh begins his ministry. Not only that, but in referring to Galilee as Galilee of the nations, God isn't just going to be saving Israel, but actually the people of the nations, the whole world, you and me. And he is going to do this through the light. Look at me from verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Yes, out of the darkness, God's light is a sure and certain hope. I wonder if you noticed the tense there. Notice that it's written in past tense. Israel can be so sure and so certain of God's promises that they can speak of it as if it has already happened. Because God surely and certainly will provide the light to light up every corner of darkness, to provide guidance for the future, to give hope where there is none, to reorientate the lives of the nations towards him and to give them and us the vitality to be able to flourish and live as God's people for eternity. Yes, they will be walking in darkness, but only temporarily because the light will come. Uh, Let's just put ourselves in the situation of Israel during the days of exile. Uh, They've been taken away from their homelands. 
The temple, which was the sign of God dwelling with his people, has been completely ruined. It's in tatters. It's been raised to the ground. People have been slaughtered. And now they live in a foreign country with different practices, different languages, different religions. It may have been so easy to think that God has judged them and and that's it. That all hope was lost, that there's only darkness ahead. These words of God's salvation in Isaiah may not have even made sense or seemed at all real for God's people. How could this be? It's almost too good to imagine. But for us, the reality of God's hope and salvation can sometimes seem distant too. Sometimes it may seem that we too are wandering in darkness. Sometimes it may seem that we're just simply stumbling or slogging along in our relationship with God. There may be times when the troubles and the trials and the darkness of this world can press in so much that we can't see the light or it seems so distant. There may be times when our record of sin keeps on piling up and we wonder, can God really love us this much? But the amazing hope that we have is that God is the giver and the source of all light. Hope, joy, and love. And when we stay connected and simply remain in him, we can be so sure that he has a way forward for us, that he has a purpose for us, that he has a plan for us. And we can be completely sure of this because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, who is the light of the world, who came into the world to expose darkness and corruption and died and rose again to take our sin and to enable us to live with him. To enable us to live and thrive in the light of his life. And so we too can have the everlasting and increasing joy that we saw in verse 3 in today's passage. Like the time of plenty at the time of harvest or at the time of victory when the battle has been won. And we can have the hope that we see in this light in all its fullness when he comes again. But as we wait, we can also enjoy the promise of this light. Because we know that our God is a God who saves his people. And he's a God who gives us peace and freedom. Uh, Now, there there are certain things which can give us relief or satisfaction in this life. I think one of the primary things is closing all the tabs on your internet browser after a caffeine-fueled all-nighter doing an assignment or something like that. I found that very satisfying doing that. Or perhaps filing those folders into the archive after completing a project or doing something like that. Uh, The task is done. The tools are down. It's time for some well-earned rest and recuperation. Well, in these next verses, this is what God promises, but about times a billion. Not that there'll be no more assignments or projects, but no more oppression, slavery, or war. And it's not because Israel has won all the victories, but because the Lord will win them for them. Uh, Isaiah recalls Israel's victory over Midian 
and compares God's role in that victory to his role in this victory. Uh, We can recall about uh, Midian in Judges chapter 7. Uh, God raised up the leader of Gideon to defeat the Midianites, which was oppressing the Israelites. Uh, Gideon selected an army of about 30,000 men, but God said, no, no, that's too much. They whittle it down to about 300 men armed with trumpets and lanterns. So here we go. We have an army of 300 men with trumpets and lanterns versus a great big Midianite army with spears and chariots and horses. Now, I'm no expert in warfare, but this doesn't sound like a great battle plan, does it? But eventually, the 300 men won. But did they really win at the victory? Well, not exactly, because it was the Lord who won for them. It was the Lord who was fighting for them. It was the Lord who completely rescued them. The Lord was the one to give them peace and freedom. But they got to enjoy all the fruits and benefits from this victory. Likewise, Isaiah says that the Lord will give Israel peace and freedom because he is the one who is going to give it to them. It's not going to be by their own efforts, but by his grace, sovereignty, and mercy. So look at me from verse 4. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot is used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. When we read about the yoke and the bar and the rod of the oppressor, this is Isaiah picking up on when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. They were oppressed by their taskmasters and cried out to God for help. And wondrously and amazingly, he rescued them completely. But then once they were in the promised land, they turned against him. And so they were at war with other nations. They're at war within themselves in civil war. There wasn't much peace. But God is promising that this won't be the end, that a better time is coming where he will again give them freedom and that there will be a time when the tools of war won't just be put down but be completely destroyed because the peace that God is going to win for them is going to be everlasting. War will be over. Munitions factories shut down because God will bring freedom and peace. Israel won't have to fight. We won't even have to fight. Because God is the one who has already won the victory. And we get to experience the fruits and the joy of this. Uh, In modern day Australia, it's never been so easy to keep track of wars or violence around the world. Uh, Violence and images uh, and videos are sent directly to the screens right in our pockets. Uh, We turn on the evening news and see the escalation of tensions in Ukraine and Russia. We might have to do some digging, but we can still see that civil war is rife in Myanmar and in South Sudan. 
Uh, if we take a different approach and if we follow the money, we can see that Australia this financial year, we're forecast to spend $48.7 billion on defence. And in the US, $1.2 trillion Australian dollars on the military. And it can make us think and wonder, when will this all end? When are we ever going to learn? God, what are you doing? Or maybe more close to home, we may be suffering injustice in the workplace. Or our conflict may be within our different relationships. And the thought of peace and freedom may seem so far-fetched. Well, there will come a day when God will make all things new, where our groaning will be turned into laughter, where our tears of anguish will be tenderly wiped away and transformed into tears of joy, when the effects of the fall and the schemes of the evil one will be completely reversed because God has already won the victory for us upon the cross. But until then, we can wait confidently knowing that God will come through on his promises, that the kingdom will come in, and also be part of spreading this kingdom, being a part in peacemaking, in overturning justice, and proclaiming the gospel as a pointer to that day when it will all be made complete. In uh, 1971, John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote the song that will soon be blasting through all our shopping centre speakers, if it's not already, uh, Merry Christmas, War is Over. And it puts forward the idea in the refrain that if humanity just tried really hard, puts all our heads together and has the willingness to, that we can end all wars and live in peace and harmony. Now, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but over the past many millenniums of human history, the trajectory tells us that this simply isn't possible. So we need something external to us. We need something better than us. We need someone more holy than us to come and to intervene, don't we? And thankfully, this is exactly what God has done for us. He promises that there will be someone who's coming who will bring everlasting justice and peace. He promised Israel the glorious son. Look at me at from verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This son will be both humanely born and also given by God. And instead of bearing the bar of oppression and slavery on his shoulders, he will have all the ruling authority on his shoulders. There's someone coming for Israel who's going to make all the difference in the world. And what will he be like? Well, we find out in the second half of verse 6. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Uh, these aren't literally his names, uh, but these names describe what his character is going to be like. So, wonderful counselor. He will have extraordinary wisdom. 
The word for wonderful here is usually only used for something that only God can do. He will judge with justice and godly, mighty wisdom. But he will also have all the authority and will be mighty. He'll be able to use his wisdom and have the authority to put it into practice. Not only that, but he'll be a loving father. He'll be loving to his people. He will tenderly care for them, the mighty father. And he'll bring ultimate peace for eternity, the prince of peace. His loving rule of justice, love, and peace will have no end. His kingdom will last forever. See, our earthly leaders may have a season of good leadership, but will eventually either leave, fail, or die. But this leader and this king will do nothing of the sort. He is the one who is going to sit on David's throne for eternity, the one promised to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was promised that someone would sit on his throne, a great, 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 great grandson will sit on the throne forever, forever lasting. And the son described here is that very king. We mean second half of verse 7. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. For the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This king... This almighty, glorious, peaceful king is going to be a king like no other. He is going to be completely different to the kings of Judah and of Israel of old. Because where they rejected the Lord's rule, he will live in perfect relationship with the Lord. Where they led his people astray, he will lead them back to the Lord. Where they oppress the lowly and the outcasts, he will lay down his life for them. Where they neglected his people, he has a passionate zeal and love for his people. Where they led his people to death and decay and judgment, he will lead them to eternal life. And friends, this king is none other than King Jesus. He is the greater king and the promised one to bring us peace. He is the one who has defeated the ultimate enemy of sin and death by his death on the cross and rising from the tomb. And he is the one who will come again to finally renew this creation and bring his kingdom in all its fullness. Friends, Christ has already been And will be completely victorious. And he invites us to be part of it. He invites us to join his kingdom. To experience and live in the fruits of the results of his victory. As in the days of Midian's defeat. And when we become part of his kingdom. We can know his forgiveness. We can know his freedom. We can know his deep, passionate, everlasting love for us that nothing can separate us from. And how can we do this? 
Well, we can join in this kingdom by listening and obeying the words of the king that we read in Matthew. Some 700 years after Isaiah, Matthew writes this in chapter 4. That Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king has come. And he invites us to simply repent. Turn to him. And we'll be able to enjoy the fruits of his kingdom, both now and for eternity. So let's pray and give thanks. Our awesome Lord God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much that you haven't left us as orphans in this world. That even while our backs were turned against you, that you sent your Son to come for us, to die for us, to reconcile us, so that we can be part of your kingdom. So, Heavenly Father, help us to see, help us to remember how great your kingdom is, how great your joy is, how awesome your rescue is. And Heavenly Father, help us to be agents of the kingdom, to go and spread this good news to the very ends of the earth so that many people may come to know you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.